John chapter 4. We're going to look at just a couple verses real quick, and then we're going to dive right into the history lesson. Maybe we will. Maybe. Oh, it's going. It's just not on mine. All right. So I need to go back. Here we go. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, when it says that he had to pass through, it almost can read as if there was no other route. And that's not at all what it's saying. The most direct route from Jerusalem to Galilee was directly through Samaria. But Jewish men and women wouldn't take that route. They absolutely would not take that route. So it would have made more sense here in John chapter 4 if the, if the story said Jesus had to go around Samaria. In the tradition of the day, in, in, in the history of the day, it would have made more sense in John's writing for it to say Jesus had to go around Samaria. That's not what John recalls. And that's not what Jesus told John because this story, what we'll see is that the, the disciples weren't there for it. The disciples weren't there for this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So this is being relayed back to John. Now, John was probably there when Jesus said, we're going to go through Samaria. And this is where the, the disciples would have paused one of the many, many times that the disciples would have been confused and would have had pause as to what exactly are we doing and why. Because they would have been raised as young Jewish men, you don't go to Samaria. We're going to look at why. History lesson, here we go. In 930 BC, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, split into two separate kingdoms. Judah, the southern kingdom, consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And the northern kingdom of Israel was the other ten tribes. In 722 BC, Israel, not Judah, Israel falls to the Assyrians. Now, the majority of the Jews were taken captive and moved into exile in Assyria. But there were quite a few Jewish men and women who were left there in Israel. To repopulate the area, the Assyrians moved in their people. The Jews intermarried with the Assyrians, creating the Samaritans. Now to us, it's like, oh, no big deal. Well, um, according to culture and according to the old covenant, the Jewish people were not supposed to intermarry. And the Jews who were in exile saw this as a great sin to their people. In fact, the Jews referred to the Samaritans as half-breeds. They're only half of a human being. That's when I read the commentaries on what it really meant for them to call someone a half-breed. What they were essentially saying is these are only half-people. They're only 50% good enough. Now, in 586 BC, Judah falls to Babylon. So at, in 586 BC, the nation of Israel was entirely in exile. Now, 538, the exiled Jews begin to return to Jerusalem. 
In Ezra 1, you can read this, King Cyrus decrees that the Jews may return to to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple. Now, interestingly enough, two years later in 536 BC, there's some opposition in the rebuilding of the temple and it came from the Samaritans. In Ezra chapter four, we see that um, the Samaritans wanted to assist the Jews in rebuilding the temple. Because the Samaritans said, we've been here and we've been worshiping your God and we've been doing it since, we, since you left and, and now that you're coming back to rebuild this temple, we would like to help you. And essentially the Jews said, thank you, but no thank you. We will build our temple to our God, you keep your hands off of it. And tensions continued to rise. Um, And in Nehemiah 13, you don't don't have to turn there, it'll be up on the screen, just two verses in Nehemiah 13. I wanna read to you real quick so we can understand more of the story we're gonna see in John chapter four. And my laptop is not moving quickly, so. And one of the sons of that name, the son of that guy, the high priest, was the son-in-law of that other guy, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. What this is talking about is the grandson, the grandson of the high priest married a Samaritan woman which was blasphemous. It defiled the priesthood. And the king of Israel chased them out of the kingdom because they had defiled the priesthood. Now this grandson of the high priest and this woman who um, was uh, the son-in-law of Sanbalay or Sanbalay, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, um, they go to Samaria. because Sanballat was a um, governor over a Samaritan area. And he built for them a new temple for them to be worshipers and for the grandson of the high priest to be a priest to the most high God. That's why when we see in John chapter four here in just a little while, There's a debate between Jesus and this woman about, well, you worship here, but our people worship here. It all started back in the book of Nehemiah. Because the Jews could not allow someone who married a Samaritan to continue to be in the priesthood. I'm setting all this up so that we can see that there was growing tension and growing animosity and there was a reason behind the distinct hatred of the Jews to the Samaritans. Oh, now we're reconnecting. Here we go. 108 BC. So we move ahead hundreds of years. During the Maccabean War, John, I actually looked up how to pronounce this name, Hyrcanus destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. So the temple that Sanballat had built in Mount Gerizim during the Maccabean War in 108 BC, the Jews completely destroyed that temple. And somewhere between the years six and nine AD, shortly after the birth of Jesus, the historian Josephus recounts when the Samaritans defile the temple in Jerusalem by sneaking in bones of dead men and scattering them throughout the temple. 
They even went into the place where only the priests could go because dead bodies, touching a dead body in the Old Testament made you ceremonially unclean. So the priests had to go and clean up all of these bones because they were the only ones to go in there. And so they defiled the entire temple and the priests during Passover, which is one of the most holy moments in all of Jewish history. In the entire Jewish year, that was a moment that was unbelievably powerful. And we're not sure exactly when, but somewhere between 6 and 9 AD, the Samaritans come to Jerusalem and defile the temple. So now we begin to see why when Jesus says in the book of John chapter four that he had to pass through Samaria, it kind of struck them as odd. No, 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 Jesus, we don't pass through. We hate them. We avoid them at all cost. I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure who raised you. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what you don't understand about this process, but we don't go there. We go around. And so you'll see this here in just a little bit, but let's look at John chapter four. A few more verses. John chapter four, verse six. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now here on the screen, you're, you might not be able to see the, uh, the words, but I'll explain what I've circled and what I've drawn. So the bottom circle here is Jerusalem, okay? That's where Jesus started this journey. And he traveled north through Samaria to, I, I'm, I'm guessing they're gonna go to Cana of Galilee. It just says they're going to Galilee. Jesus did a lot of ministry in Cana, so I'm making an assumption that he's going to Cana in Galilee. This is the straight shot that would have gotten you there. This is the route that Jesus took. Now, Jesus is in um, halfway there in Sakar at Jacob's Well. If you've got really good eyesight, you might be able to see it there to the right of the dark black line. He's halfway there and he's exhausted. It says that he sat by this well because he was wearied from his trip. And he's taking the straight shot. This is the route that the Jews traditionally took. They crossed the Jordan River to walk through the desert to cross back over the Jordan River. P.S. They're not nice bridges. You're fording a river to get to Cana to avoid the Samaritans. Now, I did this for you. Bottom is Harrisonville. Top is Kearney. That's roughly the same distance it was from Jerusalem to Cana. That's the straight shot. To put it in our context, you go to Olathe first. Now remember, we're walking, okay? I don't want to make this trip in a car, okay? If you tell me we're going to go to Kearney, detouring through Olathe, I'm like, you're paying me 10 bucks in gas, bro, no. But on foot, certainly not. Now if you're more familiar with the east to the central Missouri, that's Odessa, Okay? I'm more familiar with the West going into Kansas, but if you're more familiar going East, you're hitting Odessa on your way to Kearney. Now, here's what I find really interesting. Jesus, halfway there on the straight shot, sits down and goes, woo, I'm tired. He's only a third of the way there on the long stretch. My point is it's ridiculous. My point is that hatred causes you to do ridiculous things. 
causes me. I do the same thing. I can point my finger at myself. My anger, my frustration, my hatred causes me to go essentially doubling the trip out of my way just to avoid people. Now we're going to jump to verse 9 of John chapter 4. And it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus sat down. This woman was there at the sixth hour, which was not the traditional hour of getting um, water. It was in the heat of the day, but she was avoiding the other, excuse me, the other Samaritan women. She didn't want to have to deal with their questions and their comments. You'll see why here in a minute. But Jesus asks her for a drink, and she goes, whoa, whoa, pause. You don't talk to me. Number one, you're a man, I'm a woman. Our culture says we don't do that. But bigger than that, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. You don't talk to me. Shows me two things. One, she understood that on how she was probably raised. She was raised by Samaritan parents, and they would have said, be careful of the Jews, they hate you. But chances are you probably won't see any because they don't come this way. They're the guys that are dumb enough to walk 60 miles through the desert to avoid us when, but, but they, that's their issue. But also she'd probably experienced it. On the map, they're close enough that they would have had some real dealings and some real interactions. And she probably understood by experience, this doesn't go well for me. This doesn't go well for me. I'm gonna jump to where I'm going because I wanna interject this here. What groups of people in our culture, when the Christians come through, do they go, oh, whoa, 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 this is not gonna go well for us? What groups in our culture, when we say we're coming through, they go, I don't, I don't know. I don't, think we should, I don't think we should interact. This is not gonna go well for me. She continues in verse, he, Jesus continues in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Last week I talked about um, loving our enemies. And the question is how and what do we do when Jesus tells us very clearly right here, you start with the gospel. You start with the gospel. That's what Jesus does here. If you knew who Jesus was, things would be different. You start with the gospel. That's what Jesus does. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know the next part. The next part, he's gonna confront her sin. But he doesn't start there. He starts with, if you knew who I was with compassion, with grace, with empathy, that, that we understand that I'm not supposed to be mad at you because you don't understand. I'm supposed to be sad that you don't understand. My heart is to break that you don't understand. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I love it. She continues, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And her response, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or or have to come here to draw water. I love that additional part. Give me the water so I'll never be thirsty again and I never have to come to this stupid well and carry these really heavy buckets of water. That's cool too. Life and works. Oh, give me that water so I can have life and I never have to work for it again. It's the gospel. It's the gospel in six sentences because Jesus can do that. It takes me like nine messages to really like encompass the wholeness of the gospel to make sure that everyone can, Jesus did it in like six sentences because he's God, he cheated. But for many Christians that I know and myself for a long period of my life, here comes our favorite part. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. My question this morning is when we read this, when we read the question, go call your husband. And then we read the response of Jesus you are correct. You, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. What tone do we hear from Jesus? When you read it and the, the, the reading voice in your head, what tone do you hear Jesus say this? Because that's going to tell us a lot about what you see as the character and nature of God. Because for much of my Christian existence, I read this as Jesus going, I've got her. Time for me to drop the bomb of truth so I can show you where you're wrong. Go call your husband. Call him. Call him up. Do it now. I don't, I don't have, yeah, that's right, you don't. You've had five, sinner. You've had five. And the one you're with now, he ain't even your husband. What are you doing? That's the tone I read it in. Which shows me so much about how I viewed God and how he viewed me and my sin. It's not how Jesus said it. Because that's not the nature of God. The nature of God is with sympathy and compassion and grace and forgiveness pre-prepared. Call your husband. Can you imagine the shame that would have just washed over her? I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. I know. You've had five. How hard must that be? How hard must that be to have five relationships destroyed and to now not see the value in yourself enough to even be living with someone who's gonna call you their husband, I mean their wife, sorry, but to not even value yourself enough that now you're living with someone who doesn't respect you. That's the hardened nature of God. How often is that not my heart or my nature? 
because it hit me this week. It hit me this week in preparing this message. We always talk about, when we talk about interacting with the world, when we talk about evangelism, it's always grace and truth, right? Why is the truth always about their sin? Why isn't the truth about God's love? Why is it that we've defined the truth as the hammer I'm gonna drop on you to show you how awful and disgusting you are in the eyes of God? Why isn't the truth to show you the bomb that I'm gonna drop on you that God still loves you in the middle of your sin? No matter what you've done or what you're going to do or how many husbands you have or what your current living situation is, the truth of the gospel is that God loves you in the middle of it. Not you dirty, rotten sinner, but that's the truth that we wanna give people. And Jesus gives her the truth. He doesn't hide it. But how do we read it? How do we hear it? Let's see if we can go forward. David, I might need your help. I think we're... Oh, here we go. Okay. Oh, I finally caught up. Here we go. Let me go back, make sure I'm not missing anything. Okay, perfect. Here we go. Oh, oh, sorry. This is a really good point. I was going to miss it. So a few weeks ago, I talked about um, God's first question to man. Where are you? To Adam. And Adam wouldn't confess his sin and use all sorts of avoidance techniques. The Samaritan woman does the same thing. I love it. I love it. So when God said, Adam, who told you you were naked? He goes, well, uh, blah, uh, and just does a bunch of avoidance techniques. And his first avoidance technique was to change the focus. So Jesus tells her, Go get your husband. I don't have one. That's right, you've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. And she goes, um, so like you worship over here and we worship over here. Where does real worship happen? I love it because that's what we do, right? I'm confronted with sin. Well, let me show you this over here. Can I interest you in this? Because I really don't want to talk about this. How about this nice shiny thing over here that I can distract you with? And that's what the Samaritan woman does. Let me ask you about worship, because I know that's a hot button topic. You guys worship in Jerusalem. We worship over here on Mount Gerizim. Where's worship gonna happen? And I love it that Jesus doesn't get frustrated with her avoidance technique. He answers it and then returns to the gospel. Returns to the gospel again. Gospel, truth, avoidance, no frustration, gospel. What are his results? Because I think that's what's most important. Because all of us want to know, and all of us who are believers in this room, we want to know if we're going to be interacting with the world, and you're challenging me to go into places that we're not supposed to go, what's the results? Well, John recorded them for us. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What would happen if all of a sudden every Christian in the United States decided, instead of avoiding places, I have to go there. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was raised and taught from the time he was a child to avoid Samaria. And when he got old enough, he said, no, 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 I have to go there. Why? Because there are people there who don't know the truth. I have to go. I have to go. Well, people are gonna talk about you. Uh huh. Bad things might happen, sure enough. I have to go, and here is why. 
many Samaritans, many half-breeds, many half-humans who were not good enough to even understand who God was believed in Jesus. But Jesus, being very Jesus-y, found it not enough to simply pass through. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. At this point, Jesus is now unclean. According to Jewish law, according to Old Testament understanding, when he ate a meal with a Samaritan, he was ceremonially unclean. You know, his response would have been, don't care. Grace overcomes everything else. He didn't just pass through. It wasn't enough to go, hey, here's the truth. Awesome, bye. It was, hey, here's the truth. Let's break bread. And again, I'm gonna just go back to what we talked about last week. Who are your Samaritans? Who are the people that you don't even wanna interact with? Because Jesus right here is not challenging you just to interact with them. He's challenging you to have six meals with them. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Then you can peace out. That's what he did to half-breeds, half-humans. Not good enough. Gross. Disgusting. Horrible people. Who are your Samaritans? Now, what was the result of him staying It's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. And many more believed because of his word. You know what happens when we go into the world as representations of Jesus? People get saved. Now, here is my question. This is me. Maybe you don't have this question. This is what I have. Why didn't it work for me? I've tried this. Why doesn't it work for me? And God just dropped the bomb of truth on me this week. Because I bring way too much of me and not enough Jesus. I go in with judgment, preconceived ideas. I don't, I don't go in with grace. I go in thinking, what is everyone going to think about me? How am I going to do this? Is it what's going to happen? I don't go in with... I'm just here to love you, to introduce you to the grace and the gospel of Jesus. He didn't pass through. He went the extra mile. There were results. And this is what I realized this week as I'm studying this is that we have done the exact same thing the Jews did to the Samaritans. We've, as Christians, done this to the world. We have our own sports, we have our own music, we have our own movies, we have our own schools, we have our own colleges, we have our own stores, we have our own Boy Scouts, we have our own insurance companies, we have our own clothing companies, we have our own media streaming services so that we never have to interact with the world. We go to Olathe to get to Kearney to never have to interact with those dirty, horrible, sinning Samaritans. If you were paying attention to the Operation Christmas Child video, 
He stole my closing. The last command that Jesus gave to his followers that we see in the gospels because there are more in the book of Acts, but in the gospels. Go. Go. Go and make disciples in all the world. One of those places that he lists, Samaria. And did it on purpose. Because he didn't want us to be confused 2,000 years later, being able to find excuses and reasons to not interact with the Samaritans. The specific command in Matthew includes the half-bred Samaritans. The people that you hate, the people that I hate, that their sin bothers me to my core. Jesus says, my command is that you go and make disciples of them. That you go into Samaria and make disciples of the people that you hate. That's the call of Jesus on our lives. Not to separate ourselves from the world. Not to create all these barriers and boundaries and ways that we can do our own thing. And here's the deal. None of those things are bad. But what we've done is we've created an entire subculture where we can just interact with those that are like us. And here's the argument I get. What about our kids? And my response having three children is I better be a good enough parent that they impact the world and the world doesn't impact them. That's my job. And if they go out into Samaria and something happens, that's because I didn't train them well enough. It also really shows me how little faith I have in God. That God in his commandment said, go and do this. And I say, well, what about my children? I don't think you can protect them. God literally solved the problem of sin in six hours. Then the problem of death in three days. I think he can handle my children. He did. He solved the history and the future of sin in the time that it took Jesus to die on the cross. And then death, the thing that we're all gonna face, that we're all scared of, I I got that in three days. And I'm sitting up here worried about my kids because the world is horrible. And it is. I can't lie to you. The world's horrible. The world is horrible, but my conviction this week, my conviction this week and my, my closing, actual closing, I think I've said closing multiple times. This is my actual closing, I promise. Could it be? It's a question. Could it be that the world's so bad because we're no longer in it? Salt is a preservation item. If you don't put salt on something, it goes bad. Could it be that the world is as bad as it is because all the salt has been removed?
because we're afraid to go through Samaria. Could we be like our savior and say, I have to go there? Let me pray. God, forgive me. Forgive me for preaching this and not living it. Forgive me for creating barriers and and boundaries between me and the world and for not having faith in you. To not have faith to believe that if you called me to something, you're going to be with me in it. If you've called my children to something, you're gonna be with them in it. Forgive us individually and corporately where we've forgotten that we're the salt of the world. God, I pray this week that you give us opportunities to interact with our Samaritans. No. God, I pray that you give us the courage to create situations where we have to interact with our Samaritans. Because they're not gonna come to us. We've got to go to them. And so God, give us the courage to go to them and to love the unlovelies, to love those that no one else does, to love those that the Christian community has said are half-breeds and not fully human that they're monsters and they're vile and they're gross and they're all these things. God, that's exactly who you've called us to love. That is exactly who you've called us to go to. That is exactly the communities that you have called us to infiltrate with your love and with your grace and with your gospel. But God, we are just sitting in Jerusalem and walking around Samaria. We refuse to go through it. And so God, I pray that we can do what you have called us to do before you make us do what you've called us to do. God, this is your heart. God, you went to the house of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. May that be said of each and every one of us. God, as always, anything that I say, that's for me in my imagination. Let it be forgotten before anyone leaves this space or logs off this video, but God, everything that's from you, let it stick forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.